Welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm your host, Mike Wong. Today's guests need no introduction in this corner of the universe, but I'll do them the honor anyway. Dr. Aaron McDonald has a PhD in astrophysics from the University of Glasgow. She's worn numerous hats over the years, a member of the LIGO project, an aerospace engineer, a prolific writer and science communicator, but of greatest interest to us today, she is the full-time science consultant for the Star Trek universe. Dr. Mohammed Noor is a professor of biology and dean of natural sciences at Duke University the author of the book Live Long and Evolve, and an occasional Star Trek science consultant. So there's a distinction between, say, for example, Aaron's role and my role. So Aaron is on retainer. So she's like, the analogy I like to say is that she's the sheriff of science, and I'm somebody who sometimes gets deputized to come help with science. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. It's a good one. They join us today to talk all about the science in Star Trek Discovery's third season. I know you can't wait to hear more from them, so without wasting any more time, let's fly. Dr. Aaron McDonald and Dr. Mohammed Noor, welcome back to Strange New Worlds. Yay! It's great. It's so great to have you. Um, you too have the coolest jobs in the universe <laughs> as science consultants for the Star Trek universe. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, season three of Star Trek Discovery was the first Star Trek to come out with your names attached to the credits. And I see some nodding. So yes, uh, that's it, correct. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't too long ago then that you made that giant quantum leap from being fans <laughs> to actually working on Star Trek. So my first question to you both is, I would just love to know the story of the moment that you were approached to be a science consultant for the Star Trek universe and like what went through your mind and how did you feel and how did you react? Um, maybe Aaron, we'll start with you. Okay, <laughs> it's, uh, it's been a long road. From, from there, there to here. <laughs> I uh it's so I say that so naturally and then now I can't stop going down that route but anyway um science consulting was always something that I had wanted to do was interested in doing I had always wanted to find an intersection between my scientific background and the entertainment industry um that's always been something that I wanted to work in um for a long time and so when I started giving talks at science fiction conventions that I was attending as a fan anyway, I realized they're a great place to teach some science. So I started giving lectures at these things. And then I started to meet people who work in the creative industry. Through this, I met Bowie and Erica, Bo-Yan Kim and Erica Lapolt, who are writing team on Star Trek Discovery. And I mean, we hit it off like a house on fire. We're, they're just awesome, nerdy, geeky people. And then they found out about my background and, you know, we had kind of crossed paths. I think we had talked about, you know, opportunities earlier, but really it didn't quite work out the way, you know, because obviously it's a big production and there's lots of different storylines going on. But the timing did work out as they were developing the concept for season three. They um, approached and just said, hey, we have an opportunity. We'd love to bring you on. 
And I think it was one of those because you slowly build up to it for so long. And I think people who work in academia can relate to this too. It's like, by the time you finish your PhD, you're like, yeah, whatever. Like, it's just, it's done. There's going to be another layer. I did like four celebrations when I finished it, when I submitted it, when I edited it, when I defended it. Like there's so many, Mm -hmm. like by the time you're actually done, but it did sort of start to hit me occasionally that I'm working for Star Trek. I would just kind of have those, especially when I'm watching it myself. And so I'd occasionally just be hit with this. But then also as a science consultant, a lot of the time, I don't get to even acknowledge that I'm consulting, you know, in in general. And so this idea that they were publicly acknowledging my involvement and I could say it, (laughs) it's a really big deal. And just where I was, you know, I I live and work in LA. Um, We started to build up this idea as I was doing all these Star Trek events of maybe bringing me on retainer to work across the whole franchise and be available to any show, however much they want to use me. Discovery was already using me. And that this might be a good benefit for the franchise to do that. And obviously huge for me. So um, I would say probably when I got that contract, that was the like, oh, this is a thing that's happening. (laughs) (laughs) And, And that was like just sort of a week of it constantly hitting my mind of like, yep, I'm, yeah, working working for Star Trek. Again, you got to sit on it for a long time. And it's a long time before you can tell people you're working on it. You know, the writing starts way early in the process. And so then finally being able to share it, I again would compare it to like writing your thesis versus defending it. Defending it, that's the big like, yeah, guess what people, this has been happening (laughs) and I've been good and I haven't been talking about it. So, so yeah, it's been a lot of mini celebrations, but definitely a, a huge deal for me so thank you awesome muhammad sure so mine mine took longer because there was a long gap in the middle so like if you go all the way back to college i actually remember talking to one of my professors at william and mary and them asking me what would you like to do in the future and i remember specifically saying i'd love to give advice to star trek on how to do science so this is like 30 years ago (laughs) (laughs) long gap after that I actually went to my first convention in 2014. I actually saw Erin there. <laughs> she was presenting the very first time I saw. <laughs> so I learned at that point that people could give science talks at conventions, which was really great. So I immediately dove in and, and volunteered to do this as much as I could. That seemed to go over pretty well. I got asked by Princeton University Press you know, partway through this if uh, I could give a public talk and write a book associated with it. And the problem is the, the public talk I, I was usually giving that was not a Star Trek related one was this basically like why evolution is true. The problem is my former PhD advisor wrote a book called quote, why evolution is true. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> There'd be no point in me writing that book. It already exists. So she said, well, do you do any other sorts of public talks? I'm like, well, there is something. It's a little out there. <laughs> so that's where, you know, basically I, I made my introductory genetics and evolution class into a book. That then, so this is, this actually then leads back to the other thing. So then in 2018, I think it was, yeah, 2018 Dragon Con, Aaron and I were giving a talk and um, uh, Mary Chifo and Ken Mitchell and Jane Brooke all came to that talk, which was really cool. But at the end of the talk, Jane came up to the front and said, hey, I graduated from Duke University and, and we got to be friends and we got talking, things like that. I gave her a copy of the book. She shared a copy of that book with Erica Lippold, who Aaron had mentioned earlier and mentioned my interest in that sort of consulting thing. So ended up getting invited to contribute to Discovery. 
Um, along the lines of the, the time frame you were talking about. So, I mean, Aaron and I signed our contracts for Discovery in May 2019, I believe. Is that right? Yeah, that's about right. Yep. Yeah, it was May 2019. You know, Aaron's involvement became public in December 2019. Mine became public in February 2020. <laughs> so there was a long gap of nothing. My daughter didn't even know. I mean, that I was wow. doing this. I was, I was very much like, oh my God, I have to be careful. My son found out because when I got the email with the contract, I screamed. I was like, oh my God, they're going to leave But I had to swear him the secret. like, you can't tell anybody. You can't even tell your sister. <laughs> wow. Well, and the best part, I think, of our origin story is that we were legitimately friends and knew each other. Right. And then both ended up with our two separate science backgrounds, both in different routes, ended up consulting to the point where, you know, Michelle's like, yeah, we're we're hiring this guy, Muhammad. And yep. I was like, hey, Muhammad? <laughs> I was awesome. saying, like, Aaron, like, really? I know Aaron. She's fantastic. <laughs> so it's it's great because like when you get those team contracts, yes. you really hope you work well with the other person. And it's like, there was no stress about that. It was not just like, at yeah, all. It was wonderful ideas. working with Aaron day one. That was fantastic. Yeah, so <laughs> Still <fun>. is. <laughs> That's truly awesome. Yeah. Well, and so I, I think I want to turn now to something that you worked together on collaboratively and actually collaboratively put out a whole StarTrek.com article about, which was um, the science behind the burn. Um, so I'll link to that article in the show notes for our listeners who want to check that out. It's it's truly amazing. I learned a lot from reading it. Um, and so as we all know, the burn is the central mystery of Star Trek Discovery's third season. And it really actually took me by surprise, both what the burn ended up being and that it had so much science in it, which was a real treat. Um, so it seems like Science was foundational to the burn, and I just learned from you two that you were contracted way back in May of 2019. Uh, so I guess, what was the process of developing this story arc? When, when exactly did the writers bring you in? And were you there like right at the beginning of like deciding what the whole story arc of season three was about? Or did you come in a little bit later? I think for me, at least in Mohammed's might be a little bit of a different approach, but I know for me, what they come to me with was they were in that concept development for the season arc. So they had decided that there was going to be a burn, that they had decided everything about like, you know, that it would be a planet, that it would be a child, that it would be the child losing their mother. And they have lots of, you know, different ideas they're playing around. There's just lots, everything's on the table at that point, but, but they had that basic foundation. And so it was like, okay, we want warp you know to have destroyed to there's no one's warp capable anymore or very limited warp capability dilithium is the sort of thing that broke how could we explain that in a way that's star trek like you know can you help us come up with a science backbone we've got the story the emotional points which i think they hit brilliantly we've got the emotional impact but we don't want the emotional impact to be derailed by like a nonsense explanation that people are just gonna be like, wait, what? (laughs) So, and so that was really what we had to work towards. Exactly. And like Aaron said, I mean, they'd already decided it was partly associated with this grief expression. It wasn't going to be somebody accidentally fell down and hit a button on something and then blew up. It wasn't (laughs) going to be that. (laughs) Right, right. Okay. So um, tell me a little bit about what it's like to work with the writers on a scientific concept. You you mentioned that it was super fun to work with each other um, because you knew each other from before. And it sounds like you were also familiar with some of the writers. Um, Was there ever any challenges or maybe conflict? 
conflict where you wanted to inject a certain sciencey thing, but the writers were like, nah, that doesn't really play with our story. Or was there ever a story point that you said, actually, maybe because of science, we should do something else? I don't remember anything for the burn that they rejected that we were doing. I mean, some of the things didn't get directly incorporated, but probably just there were some cuts and things like that. But I don't remember anything that we suggested for that that didn't happen. There was one other episode we worked on pieces of separately. And I remember suggesting one thing and they're like, mm, we don't want to do that. And, you know, fair enough. I mean, they're the writers. It's, it's, it's fine. And it wasn't, you know, I have no stake in this. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, too, because because it's all, and I think that's something that I've learned working in this industry is like you just can't get too attached to stuff because there's so many voices involved and so Muhammad and I like went off you know when we kind of first got this quote assignment and we put something together and we started brainstorming we did a couple calls and we kind of put a document together like okay here's this foundation here's we literally had like here's the physics of the burn here's the biology of the burn and like here's how they work together and here's how this happened and then we throw it over the fence and then you know I don't think we ever got any like major pushback it was just like We've taken a little bit of a turn, you know, we've changed it a little bit. So we're going to need you to go back and tweak it. Or does this still work? And how does that change your science background? But for the most part, I mean, when we send those big concept documents, they just like the writers will just all get a copy of it. They all, you know, tape it next to their desk and that's what they refer to. So, and they ask us if we have any questions. Um, But yeah, I mean, I have had other times where they want to go down a route where I'm like, oh, science says no, that's not. And so, and that's like, that's okay. Cause that's what they want to do. But it's like, you know what? Let's just not explain it. Just don't explain it. You know, cause Star Trek has plenty of that stuff. This, this, right. Since the original, <laughs> yes, since the original series, they have had plenty of storylines that have zero science, but where Star Trek, you know, they don't even try. And I think that's the positive side of Star Trek. It knows where those boundaries are. The element I really like is the fact that they even asked us. I mean, because, you know, there's so many shows out there that wouldn't have said, you know, whatever, we're going to do this thing. We'll Google a few things. We'll look at Wikipedia and we're just going to put some science in there, whatever. But the fact that they're very keen on making sure that if it's easy to make it scientifically good, we want to make it scientifically good. Like basically, if there's a way to make it work within the science, that's great because they know how many scientists are inspired by these series and they want they want people to respect the show. And that says a lot, the fact they're willing to invest in doing that and, you know, hiring, you know, Dr. Aaron right off the bat. That's a huge thing. And, you know, contracting with others as well. And, and too, just because you kind of asked a little bit about the atmosphere of working with the writers, they're all interested in science. They're all, I mean, I've had opportunities to go into these rooms just for like a half day where you come in, grab lunch, sit down, and I'm just hammered with questions of just, hey, I saw this in the news, I saw this, like, can you explain this? Can you explain this? Because they're just genuinely interested. And I think that, you know, it's really just up to us to just do that double check and make any research a lot easier. And Erica Lippold has a PhD in biology. I mean, it's, you know, this is one of the writers too. Yeah, 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 definitely. Uh, She's on my list of people to try to get on the show one day. (laughs) Yeah, she's great. Uh, Well, all that you've just said is super heartwarming to me. And I honestly think it really shows in in a show like Discovery that the writers are all super invested in science. Um, So now I kind of want to dig a little bit deeper into the actual science of the burn. And I think I'll start on the biology side because that's what I touched upon in my previous episode of Strange. I heard it was great. (laughs) You (laughs) did a very good job. (laughs) Uh, And then we'll come back to the physics. Um, So yeah, in in the season finale, Dr. Kolber suspects that Sukal, the Kelpian, has developed some kind of genetic connection to dilithium. You think Sukal's genetically connected to dilithium? I think his genes have mutated to allow his body to interact with dilithium in unique ways. 
Yes. Well, dilithium has a subspace component. Uh, does that does that mean he'd have a genetic connection to subspace too? That would explain a lot. And when one's environment, Sukal's environment is like a dilithium-filled planet, right? So when one's environment influences one's gene expression, we call that epigenetics. And you wrote yes. about epigenetics. I loved your explanation too. That was great. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more, Mohammed, about how epigenetics actually plays out in real life and sure. um, how you decided that that was going to play a central role in the birth. That's a great question. So, I mean, your explanation in your other episode about epigenetics was spot on in the sense that yeah, these are modifications to the expression. When you say expression, of genes, I mean, like the amount of RNA they're producing, for example, and they're not through changes in the DNA letters. So, you know, DNA is usually abbreviated with ACs, Gs, and Ts for the four building blocks. So it's not changes to those letters, but it could be, for example, um, you know, chemicals that are binding to the DNA that then basically turn the gene to an off position. So that would be, for example, methylation. If you have a methyl group tied there, that basically could fix the gene to the off position. Now, the nice thing about using that, I mean, most sci-fi, not just Star Trek, but most sci-fi tends to rely on mutations. The problem when you're working with mutations is like, you can't just make a mutation happen in every cell of something that's already out there. <laughs> that, does, that doesn't, I mean, you could do that, but then it's not gonna be the same mutation and the outcome is almost certainly just gonna be cancer and death, you know? <laughs> so you know, not touching the whole Marvel universe here. <laughs> we'll set them aside. <laughs> Epigenics, I mean, that's, that's a way where you can get a lot of cells, like, you know, maybe whole organs, like basically operating in concert where like, okay, now this gene is turned off in all of these organs and, you know, epigenetic responses happen in response to environmental conditions. So that seemed like a, that was a nice way to go and a nice way to introduce this concept because, you know, this is something that's much more cohesive. Now, what had to happen in this case, we were basically just changing. I mean, so call just had to be different was really the punchline. It's not that we had a specific direction we had to move him. So, okay, well, this is a fairly straightforward way of making him different. Now, we added to this, this idea that, that Dr. Culber mentioned just very, very briefly in the last episode of season three, which is that possibly Sukal was a polyploid. Mm -hmm. So polyploids have, as you described very eloquently in your last episode, <laughs> double the, the, or more than two copies of all chromosomes, right? Because like we as humans have one, one copy from our mom, one copy from our dad. You know, anything that's polyploid would have more than one from each parent. So it'd be multiples like that. There's some advantages to that. I mean, one thing is it will change gene expression. It will change epigenetic profile. So that's an instantaneous way of getting that thing to happen. The other thing too, is that polyploids can be induced by radiation, <laughs> which again, this is something we're encountering here. And polyploids are often found in extreme environments and, you know, seem to have tolerances. And it's not every time, I mean, often polyploids are bad too, but... Maybe it's the case where, okay, this this is an extreme environment. <laughs> so maybe by virtue of becoming a polyploid, not only changing gene expression, but you're also say like doubling the amount of expression of some of the repair genes that he might need. So he's, so he's more resistant to the radiation. Again, the whole point was just to try to make him really different. And then that's going to then tie in with this connection to dilithium from his screams, which I, I assume Dr. Aaron will go into momentarily. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I, I like that explanation. And um, it was a little bit fuzzy in my mind, the connection between polyploidy and epigenetics, but I think you explained it really well here that Thank you. being a polyploid just naturally changes your epigenetic profile. Yeah. Okay. 
Uh, and one last question about the biology of the burn for you is, I know you're a geneticist, so did any of your actual research uh, on the genetics of uh, fruit flies actually play into directly uh, this this burn? No, actually, I need to tease you about something back to episode five. Okay. So you, so you said that in that episode, I, I'll, I'll bet somebody an Eagle Moss uh, model. <laughs> 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 the Mohammed was the one who put in that chimeric something or another. Uh-huh. Wasn't me. <laughs> it wasn't. Oh, it wasn't me. <laughs> well, luckily, the prions were. Okay. The prions were, but not the the, the chimeric thing. So, okay. I, well, I like my Eagle Moss uh, model. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll get you one. Yeah. Um, okay. No, no, we'll no, we'll no, return no, to that. We'll return to that in a, uh, a bit later. Um, sure. But yeah, now I think uh, let's let's switch over to the physics of the yeah. burn. Um, so. Aaron, I love that in the Star Trek.com article, you explain the relationship between normal space and subspace, that it's like the relationship between real numbers and imaginary numbers, which I really loved. And you explain how that makes dilithium a unique substance because it sort of exists in this complex plane of spatial dimensions. And as far as I know, this has never actually been explained in that much depth before. Is that right? Is this all your introduction? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I I sat down for probably a few weeks. I mean, I was and I was working full time as an engineer when I was doing this. So it was weekends and, you know, the odd procrastination at work, really trying to get to the heart of like how this could work and how dilithium functioned. And I mean, I'm, you know, already have given lots of talks on the physics in Star Trek. And so I, I have a good understanding of dilithium and what we know canonically with it, but we needed more if we were going to explain how this burn happened. So it was a matter of kind of absorbing everything in canon that we have about dilithium and figuring out what has not been explained and where we can go with it. And so this idea that, you know, if we kind of go back to the beginning and talk a little bit about how I reverse engineered it, if that's okay, like mm -hmm. um, this idea that first we have to start with this scream. And what the scream does is it goes faster than light and permeates the galaxy and implicitly the universe. But that was really the key because it goes faster than light and almost instantaneously, you know, part of the plot is that they triangulate it. So it's important to note that it is very much almost instantaneously. There's still an origin point. Um, but the rules of subspace, that's just this idea outside of our sheet of space time um, where you're not limited by the speed of light. So I was like, okay, so this is happening in subspace. What could we have? What works in subspace? Like what what can we build off of? <laughs> so I went like, what particles can I make tied to subspace that ties to dilithium? Because dilithium, even if you dig into it, they never said if it's like some sort of weird hybrid of lithium, which, you know, we don't really have a way our current chemical understanding of doing, mm -hmm. or if it's like another element in its own right, or if it's a weird crystal combination. Anyway, so I came up with this idea that we can have fundamental particles. So when we talk about bosons. That's really the stuff that makes up atoms. So we have protons, neutrons, and electrons, and the stuff that makes those up, you know, we have these fundamental boson particles. 
So I was like, what if we had subspace bosons? Like what if you could have particles, like fundamental particles, but just that exist in subspace? I played around with these phrases for so long and Muhammad knows like this, the note, it got so techno babbly, but like still in my mind was working that we have complex gauge bosons. <laughs> so if you think <laughs> of subspace as the complex plane, like you said, this idea that you have an imaginary numbers. And this really came to me where in general relativity, which is my background, that's where you deal with the fabric of space-time. You know, you're really looking at how mass interacts with the fabric of space-time. Your life is matrices. I can't emphasize enough how much you do matrix mathematics when you work in general relativity. <laughs> and so when I, even way before I started doing this with Star Trek, I had heard explanations and I had kind of understood this idea that you could have a matrix of dimensions. If you think of, try not to get too complicated, but if you think of our, our normal universe as a diagonal matrix, um, in the same way we think of real numbers as being a diagonal matrix, subspace is where it's on the off diagonal. So it's like the eigenvalues change. You have different points in the matrix where your sort of fundamental numbers are. And that's how we think of complex numbers as being this sort of offset matrix that when you multiply it together, you can get a real number. But then you can think of, let's change space-time to exist in this complex plane where we offset the diagonals and where you can play with it to get back to normal space and all that. But we're purely living in mathematics land at this point. <laughs> and um, so that that's kind of how I conceptualize subspace. We make it analogous to the complex plane. And then leading from that, calling them complex gauge bosons, that we have almost, quote, imaginary gauge bosons, these fundamental building blocks that build particles and components. That's not dilithium in its own right, but they make up part of dilithium. Mm. So dilithium exists in our normal space. We hold it, we keep it, we use it to regulate warp reactions in the warp core, but it has a tie to subspace being partially built by these complex gauge bosons. And so that's kind of where that came from. Uh, this is a long explanation. <laughs> I'm so sorry. No, it's, it's but yeah, I, I'm really happy with it. I think it kind of worked for being purely science fiction at this point, but just trying to take that grounding that I have in general relativity and an understanding of, you know, our fundamental building blocks of, of our universe and like how we can start to play with those to make this work. You know, astrophysics is so interesting to ponder because it's really, like you just said, talking about the fundamental aspects of our universe, like what the nature of reality actually is. And Aaron, yeah. it seems like you get to define what the nature of reality is in Star Trek. <laughs> it, so, it must be That's so much epic. fun. Yeah. Um, yeah. That was, it was a moment when I was typing up the details of how dilithium worked where I was like, am I writing canon for dilithium? Like... <laughs> this a thing so i'm very proud of it um i think it works i will defend it and and i'm happy to see it in the canon now absolutely more than happy thrilled yeah. ecstatic oh, <laughs> it's not no, enough it's, words <laughs> it's great it's I, I mean you know i've been a star trek fan for nearly all my life and of course you know being a nerd i want to know really what what is going on in a starship how does that lithium work and I've never gotten a real satisfactory explanation until now. So um, hey. yeah, thank you for that. <laughs> um, so I wanted to touch upon a couple of things that you mentioned. So you basically are saying that there are these 
other dimensions. And I know that in some theories of physics, like string theory, there are maybe like 11 or even more posited extra dimensions. So how does your conception of what subspace is relate at all to that? Or is that completely different? You can define it either way. We were kind of mentioning this on my Twitch stream earlier that like Voyager has mentioned these multiple realities and these multiple dimensions before. And so one of them might be what we call subspace that, you know, the Star Trek Federation technology has found a way to understand and tap into maybe through finding dilithium or whatever, that there's like a dimension that's higher than our normal space time that we understand and we call it subspace. Um, But then there could be more than that. So if you want to tie it to string theory, you can go down that route. But I usually try to think of it like we have normal space time, then we have subspace. But, you know, my explanation doesn't preclude other dimensions. It's just another way of defining it. I I wouldn't go so far as to explicitly say, like, the string theory explanation for alternate dimensions is possible. But I think if you go down that route of making the analogy to complex numbers, that you can have almost, and if you've worked in, like, high mathematics with complex fields it's like you can have different types of complex numbers i think that's sort of how you can think of like you have different types of subspace there's just one that we understand and have defined better very interesting more types of subspace (laughs) (laughs) right (laughs) crazy okay and then also with the um with the particles so you're saying that dilithium is a crystal composed of normal matter or the so-called baryonic particles but then in addition to that also these complex subatomic particles so i know i'm not a particle physicist but i know that in the standard model of particle physics we have this like table with all of these different subatomic particles. Some of them have very strange names. In fact, I think one of them is called the strange particle. <laughs> <laughs> so so in, in, in Star Trek, what you're saying is basically there's that and you know, you've supplemented that basically with more particles that occupy this complex space. Exactly. That wow. you have, if you break, because yeah, like you said, you have that baryonic matter and if you're breaking those down, you know, I said the term gauge bosons. Gauge bosons are specifically the fundamental particles that make up baryonic matter, which are the protons, electrons, neutrons that we have. So the gauge bosons, bosons being the fundamental force particle for like matter, then we're just expanding that. You're right. We're building out that table to have more that live in the complex plane. And I love how, you know, Sukal's screams of grief. They're, they're like a shock wave that destabilizes dilithium. And as I, th- I think it might've been Adira who said, um, like all waves need a medium to, to travel through. Uh, as we all know in space, you can't hear anybody scream, but there are waves that propagate through space called gravitational waves. And I guess waves that travel through subspace would be very similar to that. Um, it seems like that's a nice parallel to the, the research that you did during your PhD. <laughs> Did anything unusual happen on board before you beamed down here? Yeah, our, our warp core reacted to something, a, a subspace radiation surge. Why? So Call got upset. He screamed and the entire ground shook. Sound is, is a mechanical wave. Its energy travels through a medium. Like subspace. His scream must have traveled at the resonant frequency of, of dilithium subspace components. That's what hit our warp core. So whatever frightened him 125 years ago? must have been infinitely worse than what happened to him today. That's what caused the burn. (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, for that, I wasn't necessarily pushing any type of emission. I just wanted to make clear that like it wasn't sound <laughs> um, and it was traveling through subspace. And in the same way, because I, I do have the gravitational waves background, we talk about multi-messenger astronomy where you can pick up electromagnetic radiation as well as gravitational waves. And so I kind of thought of that screen, that emanation of grief being a combination of sound and other radiation. You know, the analogy I like to use is that like when you get angry, when you're viscerally screaming, your body's also heated up slightly, you know, mm -hmm. and so you can kind of tell a person's mood based on the infrared radiation, which is electromagnetic that they're giving off. So you can kind of see that, that that's, that is multi-messenger grief, right? Essentially. And so <laughs> just pulling on that, we're not necessarily defining what type of wave went through subspace, but it was a type that did have an effect. Absolutely. And it seems like this multi-messenger nature of the burn also extends perhaps to psionic dimensions because somehow everybody knows this lullaby. Um, right. uh, and so I was wondering if there was an explanation for that, that, that either of you have, because that was something that was unclear to me. I didn't consult on that piece. Okay. I don't know if you did anything <laughs> with that, Aaron. <laughs> um, so story-wise, they had built that in as part of the mystery, but my role was to make very clear and to just double check at all the dialogue that at no point did they say they were actually detecting sound. Okay, they great. were detecting you see there's very clear <laughs> lines yep, yep. where they say we are picking up in the audible frequencies that we're translating to sound. So again, whatever radiation they're picking up can be translated to audible frequencies. And so other than that, though, we, we didn't science that, but I think it was a neat sort of, you know, it's an element of storytelling, right? It it's not all going to be hard yeah. science fiction. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There's a signal coming from the center of the nebula. And we weren't sure at first, but it's deliberate. Something or someone is definitely sending it. The signal frequencies are in the audio range. Um. It's been distorted by magnetic interference, but well, uh, it... It sounds like music. I've heard this before. The Barzans on the seed vault ship, the mother was humming it to her child. And Gray used to play the same thing on the cello. That's weird, scientifically speaking. The computer has detected a recurrence of these precise combinations of tones since we arrived in the future. Thank you both for explaining the process of trying to create this uh, science fiction phenomena of, of the burn. And it sounds like it was one, a lot of fun, but also two, took a lot of work and a lot of creativity. You were able great to partnership. bring- Great <laughs> partnership, right? These are all things that uh, very much parallel the scientific process, you know, science is done as a team, partnerships with people, lots of creativity go into designing an experiment or coming up with some new theorem. I'm wondering how this creative process of, of developing a science fiction narrative was in any way similar for you to doing actual science. 
It was well, very similar from my perspective to like writing a review paper with somebody with complementary expertise. Right? <laughs> Whereas like, you know, that, you know, I completely trust Aaron on the, the astrophysics and like she'll elaborate something. I'll be like, well, what does that mean? When you know, I'll ask questions and she elaborates it. And then I feel like then our roles reverse. We get to the, the next half of that review paper. And, you know, Aaron's like, well, does that actually work? It's like, eh, maybe not. Let me, let me tweak that a little bit or let me make it a little bit clearer. But it, it was it was very similar to at least from my experience, like writing a review paper with somebody from a from a parallel field, and you're putting it all together. And it was nice because it wasn't just a like half and then half, but it really did meld in the middle where there there had to be, as Aaron said, like we had a biology section, we had a physics section, we also had this like, and here's the interface, and we both worked very hard on that piece, and it was beautiful. It was just really positive and just you know just really fun. <laughs> well, that, I think yeah. too. Mohammed can probably speak to this a little bit more, but since you're much more of a professional researcher than I used to be, <laughs> I only did professional research for a short time. But I think too, it's not just that writing the paper part, but almost where you're like, well, what if, and your yes. research starts to take you down that path and then you yes. start making calls and you get that going. That's still like, all right, we got to open our mind. We got to get creative. And yeah, it's yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess the one thing we didn't have is we didn't have the experimentation phase. <laughs> that's, that's true. Let's get this alien and put them out there and see yeah. what happens. Our, our scientific method process would probably be a C. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Let's move on to your other contributions this season. Um, so as a fan who had no idea what was coming, I had a lot of fun watching this season because I knew you two were behind these, you know, scientific contributions, I tried to, you know, spot, you know, oh, that looks like something that Aaron would write, or that was something that <laughs> Muhammad would contribute to. Um, but actually, I don't know for sure that any of those things that I spotted were actually contributions from you or if the writers had put them in without your consultation. So maybe you could tell me <laughs> what are some of the other contributions to season three that you you're really proud of? Well, the other big project that we worked on was a specific episode. I think it was episode six, five, five, five um, that uh, was another sort of project that we were given. So this was the one with the uh, seed vault um, yep. accident and um, due to the coronal mass ejection. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, yes, I love uh, that. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I don't know, Mohammed, do you want to kick off kind of? Sure. That, that, was, that was interesting because that was one where we each got consoles, but we actually, this was one we didn't work as much together on, but we had sort of two independent pieces. But I remember like, we still talked a little bit at the time, like, because I remember running a couple ideas by Aaron, like, well, you know, what do you think about this? So for mine, my part of that was trying to figure out the disease aspect of what was happening with these aliens. So they already decided there's going to be the seed ship and that these aliens are showing up and they're sick because they've eaten something. It can't be something that's communicable like through the air or something like that. Something they definitely got from something they're eating. Somehow finding the seed ship or something like that would actually be a way of getting some information that would help them lead to a cure. So that was one where I suggested for them, as, as you discussed in your episode very elegantly, that was one where I suggested the prions. Because so I thought, okay, this is a pretty nasty thing, right? Prion diseases are really bad. You know, you can, if you pull up the CDC website, they, they basically say there's no cure. <laughs> it's, it's, they're bad things. But again, you, you get them from consuming something. And the idea there was with the seed ship, the seed ship part was, you know, that was, a, the science was, I like to say, more creative. Instead of saying it was shakier there in terms of what I, what I was suggesting for it. But what I suggested is that in some way, the seeds were derived 
prior to some change that had happened. Therefore, they could see what the structure of the protein should be like. So what prions are, they're, they're, prions comes from protein infection, the PR from protein, ION from the end of infection. So you put those together, that's where the word prion comes from. So prion proteins in our bodies will actually like, we have them already, but there's a specific conformation, so like a shape for these proteins. And if they get into that shape and they touch other proteins, the other proteins adopt that same shape. And it's infectious because then more and more of the proteins will get that shape. And that shape is such that we can't actually break them down really well. So they accumulate in our nerve cells. And that's what then causes all sorts of, especially neurological disease, which by the way, Star Trek loves neurological disease for some reason. <laughs> Across all the series, there's always some neurological disease. Anyway, so I was thinking, well, maybe if they, if maybe they don't know what the original shape was that started this whole process. So maybe somehow looking at some seeds that were acquired before that. So going back and forth with the writers, I think it was actually Michelle who suggested because I suggested something like maybe this is a uh, plant that was moved to a specific planet at some point in time. She said, well, what if we instead we say that there was some environmental change on the planet? I was like, oh, that's a great idea. So I think that wasn't actually me, but that was that was one of the writers. So again, this shows some of the communication that happens in the brainstorming process with that. So I suggested, well, maybe then, you know, some, you know, UVB radiation or something like that happened. And that's, and that's what caused this conformational change. And it wasn't especially bad for the plants, but it was similar enough to some protein in us, which I know a lot of people who are hardcore biologists might be like, oh yeah, right, that would never happen. But I actually looked up and found some <laughs> nerve proteins that are very similar in structure to, to plant proteins. And actually like I put citations in what I submitted just in case somebody was gonna get that one too hard. <laughs> so that, that was basically the idea there. Now, it was interesting in the discussion of that, there was some back and forth about a subplot that never made it into the episode. Because I remember, that was, remember I mentioned there was one idea I said, well, how about we do Blonde? They're like, no, we don't want to do it. There was going to be a subplot, but then that never made it into the show. So that's just an example that sometimes you work on something and, and it wasn't like they said no to my idea. There's just the whole subplot went away. There was yeah, going to be something involving the aliens that, I mean, in the end, the aliens kind of were background, but there was going to be something more actively involving them. And yeah. that just didn't happen. That's why you can't get attached. It's yeah. <laughs> it disappearing. I watch all of this stuff, like just being like, well, I hope everything made it in. Yep, yep. <laughs> I have no idea what the end product's going to look like between the final scripts, the scripts editing on the fly while they're shooting, you know, the editing floor, the final post-production, everything. It's just, you know, it's, you yep. do the best you can. And we didn't know, like when the show was coming on, like, I, I, I don't know if Aaron did, but I, I was just like, I don't know what's going to be in this. Let's see. <laughs> Interesting. See how we did. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. So Aaron, it's, it seems like you also contributed the coronal mass ejections uh, for that episode. <laughs> <laughs> you want to talk about that a little? Yeah. I mean, it's, again, I, I really don't want to take like sole credit for this because the teleplay was by Sean Cochran, who's one of the writers for Discovery. And he's a delight to work with. I, I love working with this guy. He's funny. He's um, he's super into science. We love bouncing ideas around each other. So it's really hard for me to even say kind of who came up with specifically what, because it'll just be like a hour long phone call of just like, well, what if this and what if this? And, and then you kind of collaboratively end up with this idea and we're like, yeah, that sounds cool. Mm -hmm. And so you'd love those moments where you just get the call and they're like, all right, we want to do a one-off sort of slightly sci-fi horror, you know, space disaster plot. Awesome. What kind of space disasters could we use? What are used too often? What haven't been done? Uh, what do you think would work? That's not too complicated to explain. Cause it's not like the whole plot. That's just, you know, a thing that happens. 
And so we played around with some ideas and you start to kind of narrow it down as you, as you think about what you want, like, okay, gamma ray burst. Well, gamma ray burst, that would be like, that would be really rare. And that would sort of be noted. And that would be kind of from a far distance and it wouldn't have like this localized effect, but you know, a star, if it's orbiting a star, then you really, that could do some damage and like, let's make it as bad as it can be. And that's a coronal mass ejection where you just get this huge burst of, you know, radiation particles or a burp as, (laughs) (laughs) um, and, uh, yeah. And and so you get this radiation particles that have this effect and, and can be very debilitating to electronics, um, to people. Yeah. So across biology and technology as well. And so, um, so we went with it. Sean went with it and go and develop the storyline. And then I did this concept assistance and you get calls and you get sort of emails that are just like, Hey, here's some dialogue we're playing around with. Like, can you help us tweak this? And, but then it, you know, once I was brought on fully on retainer for the franchise, then it was like, okay, here's like all the scripts, (laughs) (laughs) go read them. And so that's where I, you know, going from more the early concept stage to seeing more the final product and then just kind of making whatever tweaks I can. But I think, you know, the coronal mass ejection explanation, some of it, I was just like, oh, I said that in the call. (laughs) (laughs) I remember that. And, you know, even just sending in some graphics ideas to just be like, hey, these are the reference points I'm thinking of to explain like what a spectrograph looks like if you're trying to, you know, where they're trying to figure out what it was. And then they they narrow it down to a coronal mass ejection. Um, The dialogue around that, you know, I think too, some of the stuff that we contribute is also how would this crew science that, mm-hmm. you know, that that's a big part of it too, where you say, okay, well, they've got to solve this problem. So what breadcrumbs are left that like, if you were given these breadcrumbs, would you figure out that it's a coronal mass ejection? And can you do it in pithy, concise dialogue that's going to make sense to a broad audience? And so, yeah, I was thrilled to work on that again. Really, I, I give a lot of credit to Sean because he just had some great ideas and really put together a great story with it. Are these values from a magnetic or a mass spectrometer? Duh. Which means magnetic. I know what duh means. Can we just irradiate your entire personality? Calibrating for a cosmic background radiation? I was just going to ask you to, to do, do that? that. Duh. Your relationship isn't very professional. It's how we work. I've been trying to raise the bar. Tilly? Yes, hi, Michael, I'm here. We also have Commander Stamets and Commander Reno. We're analyzing the radiation. Listen, Dr. Addis is the only survivor. He described the ship being hit by a bright light, and the bodies of his family are showing high concentrations of beta particles. Well, that could be any number of things. He's also phasing uncontrollably. Okay, now we're on to something. Beaming is the only way in or out of the seed vault, right? I'm gonna look for the nearest star. You're thinking CME. Yep. What am I missing? The ship may have been hit by a CME, a coronal mass ejection. Kind of like a star burp. Burp in this instance would be a a massive radioactive proton storm. It should kill anyone instantly, but if Dr. Addis was in the process of beaming into the vault when the CME hit, the protons would have interfered with the ship's magnetic shielding and destabilized his body's polarization on a quantum level. Right. Bingo. Oh, yep. CME, almost uh, six weeks ago. Now his body's in limbo. May I never say the same about myself. Is there a way to bring him back in phase? I think so, but I'm pretty sure he's not going to like it. Yeah, that's awesome. I believe that was the scene where they were like, dysfunction is the team, right? Which which really cracks me <laughs> yeah. up. Uh, and <laughs> totally. I, yeah, I, I love that, that, that your job is not just to define the science, uh, but also to define how it would be scienced out by our favorite characters. That's so cool. Right. Yeah. 
So I, I guess I'm learning very rapidly what actually you know, is the job of a science consultant here? I guess, do you ever consult on things that aren't the script, but maybe also like the props or what appears on computer screens or <laughs> ship schematics, engineering type things? I, I just, I have no idea. Is that, is that part of what you um, do? Not, not for season three. And I think mm -hmm. a lot of the production, it's an element of trust with the showrunner, with the people you're working with to just say like, well, let's ask them. And so Certainly, I mean, and I'm sure Mohammed's done this too, but I've sent reference images when I've wow. been describing things that may or may not make that into that. Um, but now, having worked with many shows in the Star Trek franchise over the last year, um, I've developed some pretty good relationships and been able to now do some sort of like, hey, here's our draft image here's our draft post-production like can you have a look at that and make sure that makes sense <laughs> and but I think that's not that's not a default setting that's just more of like building good relationships having good trust that they they know I'm not going to yell at them they know I'm not going to make them cry and I'll explain the changes <laughs> in a way that <laughs> are doable and within budget right. and so you know yeah it's it's certainly I think for us, this was our first foray into science consulting yeah. for Star Trek. And so you got to build up those relationships over time. Mm -hmm. The only thing I could think of besides the things you mentioned was background dialogue. Like I remember getting mm -hmm. an ask, like, you know, what, what are the things that people would be saying in the background? Now, I remember actually like watching the episode where that happened. And for the life of me, I cannot hear the background dialogue. So I still don't know if they used it. Or, like there is background dialogue, but I can't make it out. So Oh, that easy. poor background actor like memorized that techno babble so hard. <laughs> I'm sure they were so into that. Uh, it was there, but like, I don't know if that was mine or not. Um, yeah. One other thing too that I, I did forget was this idea of ADR. So um, that's uh, after dialogue recording. I think that's what I was talking about. But maybe, maybe background right. was the wrong word. That's what I was thinking of. It was the ADR. Right. Like the after, after everything's been filmed, they're in post-production, they're in the editing room. Yeah. And then they're like, crap, we cut something that we actually need to describe. And we can have this person be off screen, but then, yeah. so ADR is where the actors come in and they re-record their dialogue that maybe didn't get picked up all the way, or, you know, if they need to redo any of it. Um, and so I've had ones where people were just like, okay, we're literally in the recording room and we need to get this. We're only off camera of this character for five seconds and your explanation is 10 seconds. So you're going to have to get it down to five <laughs> seconds in the next 10 minutes so we can get this recorded. <laughs> and uh, that's fun. That's wow. fun. Yeah. Time pressure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, with all due respect to CMEs and prions, my favorite uh, science tidbit from season three was when Kepler 174D was mentioned in the mirror universe. Uh, and I was wondering if either one of you, uh, no, no. All <laughs> credit, all credit okay. to the writers, man. Yeah. They okay. throw that stuff in like nobody's business. It's That's awesome. amazing. That's yeah. fantastic. Okay. Yeah. I was so excited for that as a planetary scientist because I was like, wow, that means that there is a mirror Kepler space <laughs> telescope. <laughs> and then that means there are probably mirror versions of all of the planetary scientists I know who work on the Kepler, <laughs> Kepler <laughs> space telescope. Like, where does it end? <laughs> are we the mirror universe? <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Didn't that come up actually? I think they, I think there was a line of someplace where they say, well, in our universe, we call you all the mirror universe. Mm -hmm. I think George yeah, yeah. Said that yeah. <laughs> yeah. So good. All right. I would love to know. How would you describe season three in just one word? Oh my God. <laughs> That's three words. 
<laughs> okay, that's my reaction to your question. Now I'll word it. Do you have yours? I mean, the theme the theme for the, sh- the season is connectedness, right? Yeah. So I mean, that that would probably be the best word for it. And I, I mean, that that theme came across so beautifully in the writing and the dialogue and how it's put together and and the, the symmetry of it. I love the symmetry, especially when you went, when you got the last couple of scenes of the last episode where it brought everything back together from the rest of the season. It was beautiful. It was very yeah. moving too. Because he took the theme of the season. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> the best one. No, that's good. Uh, that's the correct answer. But um, I, I think too, they really illustrated dependence. Like the yeah. fact that everything is interconnected and there is this sense of, of dependence on each other as a species, as a federation. Scientifically, you know, there's a lot of interconnectedness that you can't, maybe it's interconnectedness. <laughs> that's too close to your answer. But um you know, that, that everything is sort of tied together. And yeah, that I, I gotta say just, you know, briefly personal thoughts of the, the end of the season. I, I mean, I was a wreck. I, it was brilliant. I thought they brought it all together so well. And, and personally, I mean, the way that I kind of saw it as a fan and watching it, I felt so much like Burnham, they built her character so well in our understanding of her character, such that I, I kind of got her much more at the end of the episode and i was like oh my god she's like kirk she's like kirk like kirk is a crappy subordinate officer but he's a great captain like he does what he needs to do and he gets it done you know they even threw that line in where she said i don't believe in no win scenarios and i think that's kind of where it clicked for me and that you know yeah sometimes those are the types of people they make crappy lieutenants but they're great captains and i i just loved it but i was a wreck at the end of the episode (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. a wreck Especially um, when Sahil came up, like oh, oh, oh sure, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was so hoping because you know, the, as as they went through the season, I'm like, did they just forget about that guy <laughs> out there? I really hope they go back and tell him the Federation still exists. <laughs> uh, so to see him, yeah, come back at the end was just amazing. Yeah, I want to turn now to your busy lives and everything else that you're doing. I know you have lots of cool projects going on right now and lots of ways that um, fans and listeners can follow your work and, and engage with you. So I was wondering if you wanted to say a few words about what you've been putting out there into the universe. Um, I'll go first since I know Mohammed has awesome stuff that to pitch. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, I've, I've mostly crawled into a little bit of a hole. I did a lot of public stuff virtually oh, through 2020. Um, you can check out my YouTube channel, uh, Dr. Aaron Explains the Universe. You just search for Aaron McDonald on YouTube and you got all my videos there, all my other appearances, and then the channel, the episodes I made for my channel. You can now find me on Twitch. Uh, it's at Dr. Aaron Mac, D-R-E-R-N-M-A-C. Um, but I'm just there to have fun and play video games and hang out with people. <laughs> that's my break uh what i'm doing now full-time instead of doing all the science communication that i've been doing the last year is i'm really focusing on writing and star trek it's taken a lot of my time and i'm finding myself in a very good creative space now and so i really want to just kind of invest in that this year but you know but i still like to play video games so you can find me on twitch and i'm also on twitter when i'm procrastinating same handle at dr aaron mech Actually, I'm, awesome. gonna pitch, I'm gonna pitch Aaron's a little bit more that says you should go back and see some of her old videos too. Anytime I want to look up something like, what is warp drive again? How does this work? She has some really, really, really clear and elegant videos there in her YouTube channel, as well as a couple actually on StarTrek.com on things like warp drive in particular. So Thanks. two thumbs up to her content. Thank you. 
Yeah, Aaron, I saw that you've been playing a little bit of Star Trek Online. I haven't played that in <laughs> a couple of years, but uh, yeah, it's that that's a fun one. Um, yeah, the internet bullied me into it in 2020. And I got to say, it was really, it's been really fun. So I will definitely be back in playing that again. And I'm also playing through the Mass Effect series inconveniently right before the remaster comes out. So I may turn around and restart it again, but um, starting Mass Effect 3 soon. <laughs> yeah, and best of luck with all of your writing endeavors. I can't wait to read um, whatever you. you put out. Oh, she also has an audiobook too. Oh yeah, oh, people right. can find that. Um, it's been it's been so long. Uh, it's called The Science of Sci-Fi, and you can find it. It's an Audible original by me, written and narrated, and it's just kind of a quick four-hour Audible series about space-time in science fiction, how gravity works, how multiverse, time travel, all that fun stuff. So definitely check that out. Science of Sci-Fi on Audible. Also and excellent. A lot of Star yeah. Trek examples in it too. <laughs> yeah, a lot of Star Trek. <laughs> Unsurprisingly, uh, I was going to say probably needs a, an updated edition with all this new stuff from season. We do three. now. <laughs> uh, Muhammad. Oh yeah, that's right. Sorry, I have a YouTube channel. It's called uh, Biotrecky Explains. If you just go to YouTube and search that. So uh, starting back in April, I just started making these little short, you know, something like six to ten minute videos. I just randomly pick an episode and a topic and something like that. It's, it's almost like excerpts from the talks I would give at uh, sci-fi conventions and things like that. And I'm still doing those. There's, there's about one a month now. I mean, I'm not doing it super regularly. But just this month, uh, I launched a separate little mini series within. It's on the same channel, but this one's called Biotrecky with the Admiral. So in that one, uh, Jane Brooke, who played uh, Admiral Katrina Cornwell, she and I go through the episodes of uh, season three of Star Trek Discovery. So we've already released just the, the pilot episode. I think all the rest we're going to do pairs of episodes rather than just one. And I'll talk about the biology that's depicted there. Sometimes I don't talk about the depiction because there's not maybe that much biology depicted there, but I'll talk about like, for example, in, in the one, uh, the Mirror Universe one where, do you remember the scene where Giorgio get, uh, puts the fireflies next to Michael Burnham? Mm -hmm. So I talk about fireflies, you know, more generally. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, okay, <laughs> I can build on that. And then Jane talks about the production side. And obviously she wasn't an actress in that particular season, but she talks about some of her experiences or just more broadly, I'll ask her questions like, you know, why is there so much room on the bridge? And she's like, oh, it's much easier to get the cameras in between things, you know, things like that. So it's a lot of just sort of insider aspects to production. Some of it specific to Star Trek, some of it more general, but it's a lot of fun. It was really fun to record. Yeah. At the time of this recording, I think you've, you've put out that first episode yeah. uh, of this series, Biotrecky with the Admiral. I watched it. I loved it. My immediate first thought was, wow. Jane Brooke, this is so cool. Where is my Star Trek actor co-host? You know, like, why can't I have one? <laughs> um, I don't know if it's a short story, um, but if it is, do you want to just briefly say how how you got to do this collaboration with with Jane? On oh yeah. So I, I sort of prefaced a little bit earlier when I mentioned that we'd met at Dragon Con when mm -hmm. she uh, came to our talk. Um, after that, I invited her to actually come to my class at Duke as a guest speaker because I was giving a, I was giving the class on. Actually, the class title was Genetics, Evolution, Star Trek, and it used my book, which is called Live Long and Evolve from Princeton University Press. Jane showed up having read that book and gone through it, and she had like highlighted things, and she had this, you know, ton of questions through there. I was like, oh my gosh, Jane, you're like on top of this. <laughs> She's very, very, very curious and insightful. A lot of great comments. So I remember after she came and she stayed here with us and, and we chatted for those days, I was like, we have to find something we can do together, <laughs> some sort of project to do together. So then I think it was in September, October. That's when I just had the idea of like, what if I went over like something from Discovery season three with her? And I didn't know what she was going to be up for. I thought maybe, you know, Maybe we could just do one thing, talk about the whole season, or maybe we can do something more episodic. But she was all in. I mean, I loved it. She was like, I'm happy. I'm happy to go through like episode by episode. Like, wow. That's <laughs> awesome. Yeah, wow. she's a yeah. wonderful, wonderful person. 
Well, that's lovely to hear. Discovery's um, done great with admirals, by oh the way. <laughs> mm-hmm. Just yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, my last question, I, I want to start asking this question of all the people that, that I interview in 2021, and you two are the first people that I'm interviewing, so it's the first time I'm asking this question, but just given all the things that are going on in the world right now, the pandemic, rioters in the capital, uh, I want to always end on a, try to end on a positive note, and so I, I want to start asking my interviewees, what is one thing that makes you hopeful, and it can have to do with science, or can have to do with Star Trek, or can have to do with neither one of those. Just one thing in life that gives you hope right now. Um, I'm going to get emotional. I'm going to try to not get emotional. I'll say that. <laughs> um, but the day that we're recording this actually is uh, the fifth anniversary of the loss of Alan Rickman, who is my favorite mm. actor of all time. And he had a quote that has always stuck with me. And I actually got it tattooed after he passed that says, it's a human need to tell stories. So I would say the thing that gives me hope these days is storytelling, both for myself and for humanity. I think that when it's really dark outside, there's still hope in our everyday lives, but we are able to get to that point by telling stories, whether they're relaying true stories or by creating fictional worlds of our own. I think that's what gets us from day one to day two to day 10 to day 100. And that's really what I'm turning to these days. It's a great question. Thank you. That's beautiful. My answer is not nearly as good as that one. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> I mean, honestly, for me, like I am very impressed at the response to the coronavirus issue in the sense that, I mean, not, I don't want to say response, I'm not talking about the public response. I'm talking about more the fact that, I mean, you think about like less than a, or I guess a year ago now, I mean, this was something that was in China, it was just emerging. We now have you know, in place, this like worldwide vaccination program for something there was no cure for or anything to deal with. That's amazing, right? I mean, just the level of investment, governments, corporations. And yes, of course, I know, I mean, people can say a lot of things got mishandled. Yes, they for sure, that's true. But that's still a massive success that, that, you know, a year from now, it's almost certain that everybody who wants a vaccine, well, I shouldn't say, <laughs> at least in the United States, almost everybody who wants a vaccine will have had the opportunity to get the vaccine and, and a good part of the world more broadly will have gotten it. That time frame is phenomenal. And I really, I mean, I like that, well, I don't like that it's happened, but I like that, that people are embracing the science for this and saying like, okay, we need this solution. What can we do to make it happen? And people are just working so hard to make it happen at all levels, you know, in science and in the, in the production and in the, the funding at everything. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's, I think it's yeah. kind of amazing, even though it's through tragedy. I mean, as often things happen through tragedy, but. Right. It's it, thanks to the power of science that we can really. Yeah. Um, face this challenge and um, it came through it came yeah. through and then you know the vaccines are being offered now at least here in the u.s i'm not sure uh, where else but with at no cost to everybody that's yeah. amazing yeah. i mean right i mean it, it's, it gives us hope for other things in the future i'll put it that way well thank you both so much for your hopeful thoughts and for all of your scientific insight as the science consultants for the star trek universe it's been an absolute pleasure and an honor and it's just been so much fun um this is Thanks a great way to kick off 2021 so best of health to you and your loved ones and uh, live long and prosper thank you live long thank and you. prosper I cannot believe how lucky we are to get all of those fantastic explanations straight from the Star Trek science consultants themselves. 
you could just hear how happy Aaron and Mohammed were to talk about science and Star Trek. I mean, these are two humans who are just the most friendly, intelligent, passionate people imaginable. I particularly loved getting a glimpse at how their minds worked when they were presented with the project of explaining the burn, and how they put the clues together and built a self-consistent scientific story for it. On Aaron's side, it was traveling faster than the speed of light and disrupting dilithium that led her to revolutionize the canon's definition of subspace and the suite of subatomic particles in the Star Trek universe. For Muhammad, it was details about Sukal's environment, plus the fact that every cell of Sukal's body had to change in a concerted fashion that led him to the ideas of epigenetics and polyploidy. I also loved hearing about the parallels between this creative endeavor and real science. I mean, the fact that Mohammed put citations to real biology papers in his Star Trek memos made me smile so hard. Like, <laughs> I nearly died of joy. And their collaboration, the bringing together of two minds, two experts in their respective fields, I just got a kick out of that too, and I really respect that collaborative endeavor. I mean, I'm an interdisciplinary scientist myself. I'm an astrobiologist. It's literally in the name, astrobiology. So naturally, I keep wondering, if I were given the same project, would I have come up with as elegant of a solution as Aaron and Mohammed? Hey, if you enjoyed today's show, please make sure you subscribe to Strange New Worlds to get more exciting stories from the intersection of science and Star Trek. And if you feel like it, leave a rating or a review. I'd love to hear from you. I have a lot of big plans for Strange New Worlds in 2021, but you know, with so much of the world's in flux right now, I'm not sure when all of it is going to happen. If you don't hear from me for a couple of weeks, it's just because I'm trying to catch my breath from doing all of these episode responses to this wild season of discovery that we all just enjoyed, and planning and strategizing how I'm going to get all of the cool interviews and content that I'm dreaming of for 2021. But I promise I will be back. Until then, see you out there.